Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. In 1885, Métis leader Louis Riel was tried and hung for treason by the government of Canada. His execution was highly unpopular at the time, and the controversy surrounding it has not diminished. There's a reason for that. It's not really just about the actions of one man. It's about the relationship between Canada and the indigenous peoples that inhabited this space long before Canada existed and continue to thrive under that same government. So let's ask the same question. Did Louis Riel deserve to die? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the Red River Rebellions, which is a series of uh, minor conflicts in the Canadian West back in the 1800s. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm really nervous about this topic. Are you? Yeah. Um, For two reasons. Number one... In Canada, having uh, opinions on Canada's general treatment of Indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. is kind of a political statement. And so that makes this probably the most political episode I've ever made. Yeah. It's not as though my politics have never been on display if you're looking (laughs) for them. I I don't really try and hide that stuff that much. But this one's pretty out there. Um, Fair enough. Which is a little exposing. Uh, But number two, because here in Canada, we don't learn that much about indigenous people and um, the relationship of uh, the Canadian government and uh, non-indigenous Canadians or settler Canadians with the people who were here before all of us got here. Yeah. And that's actually kind of one of the reasons I chose this topic was because it, it felt like something I should know more about than I do. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And like, it feels kind of embarrassing not to know more than I do. Cause I know it's like a topic that we briefly touched on in like middle school, social studies kind of thing, but like never anything in depth. Right. And, and at the risk of sounding like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, I, I feel like a lot of that is intentional in a certain way. When you yeah. look at the way the uh, school curriculum is set up, a lot of times when we do touch on it, it's sort of in a grade school way. And in grade school, we tend not to touch on much more um, sensitive subjects. Uh, it tends to be a lot more, you know, hey, here's here's what longhouses looked like. Yep. And it, it very like uh, day-to-day living before uh uh, Colombian contact rather yeah. than necessarily our modern relationship with indigenous people here in Canada. Very kind of superficial information, yes. gloss over it. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Which is very convenient because you're talking to nine-year-olds who really yeah. don't have uh, the, the faculties to formulate the kind of questions that might actually 
you know, really delve into that relationship as it stands today. Mm -hmm. So obviously this is a history podcast. We're not going to get into uh, modern day stuff, but there's some stuff I think it's worth touching on just a little bit before we got started. Um, One of the first things I wanted to actually do, uh, and this isn't something I've ever done on this podcast before, but given the, uh, uh, given the subject matter, I thought might be appropriate. Um, we're in, uh, the city of Waterloo in Ontario and, uh, I wanted to do a quick land acknowledgement, which is, um, something that's getting a, a little bit more, um, visibility, especially in public events and things like that. But it's important to, uh, note. So here, uh, we're actually on the land of Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee and neutral peoples, uh, part of what's known as the Haldeman Tract guaranteed by the British to these peoples in 1784 after the American Revolution as compensation for loss of territory in northern New York State. And of the 950,000 acres promised to these peoples, uh, only 45,000 or about 5% remains in control of the Six Nations that it was promised to by the British. Mm. And the reason these acknowledgments are becoming important is because you should be a little bit horrified when you hear that. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of messed up. And I and didn't know that. That's uh, that's really kind of typical for the relationship between the Canadian government and Indigenous peoples in Canada. We've never really, in Canada, when I say we, I mean the Canadian government, we've never defeated First Nations in war. Mm-hmm. We've never uh, lawfully purchased land from Indigenous peoples. There have been land sales, but not in a um not in a manner that would be recognized as as a proper you know seeding of territory from one nation to another right so for example if you live on the canada u.s border and you just own a house there you can't sell your house to an american citizen and call that part of the united states now right Mm -hmm. it has to be done by the state likewise Native individuals have sold land in the past to the uh, the state of Canada, but entire nations have never actually sold that land. So that doesn't necessarily make it a legitimate land purchase. Right. Um, And here already, how I feel about our relationship to Indigenous peoples is coming right up to the top. So that's fine. But again, a little nervous, I'll be honest. (laughs) Um, First Nations land in Canada is unseated. That means that we've never actually taken it from them. They've never actually given it to us. And yet we act as though we have sovereignty over that land. And it, it creates some really messy situations. Um, it's it's really unfortunate the way that uh, the general native population is treated in Canada. So I, I think looking at how we got there, and we're going to be using the lens of the Red River Rebellions because it's such a it encapsulates this this uh, this relationship so well. But looking at how we got here is really important for understanding um, why maybe things need to change in the future mm-hmm. and why it's important for uh, Canadian citizens especially to understand uh, what our relationship is to Indigenous peoples in this country. Today, there are about 634 di- different uh, Indigenous nations in Canada. There's about 1.5 million people who belong to one of those nations. Mm-hmm. It's a sizable population. Yeah. The agreements that we've made with all of these people in the past, and, and that's that's how our, our relationship with Indigenous people has progressed, is by making treaties and other arrangements with these people, have never really been properly honored. Sometimes they're done to the letter of the law, but often not to the spirit, is kind of how we've gotten around our obligations to these people. And um, it's it's really made a bit of a, a mess of these relationships. So to really talk about the Red River Rebellions, we need to go back 
um, quite a bit further, actually right to um, the end of the the episode I did with Gary on New France. Mm -hmm. Um, When when France was defeated by the British in uh, the Seven Years' War, or what Americans call the French and Indian War, there was a uh, there was a treaty made in 1763 that essentially forbade, uh, if by by the British government, uh, forbidding uh, the settlement of any British uh, uh, colonists west of the Appalachian Mountains and the Saint Lawrence Basin. So, the Appalachian Mountains—that's pretty clear. It's, it's mm-hmm. actually pretty close to the East Coast in the United States. Yeah, and then the Saint Lawrence Basin uh, includes the Saint Lawrence River as well as the Great Lakes. So it's a pretty sizable amount of territory, but it's done that way to basically allow British settlers to remain in what would now be uh, southern Ontario. So at the at the time, Upper Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything west of that was actually forbidden, and that proclamation has, for, for most of the story that we're going to be talking about, is actually still in effect. Oh, okay. Now, when the uh, when the American Revolution comes, not that long after, really, in 1776, um, this uh, this proclamation is broken in the United States mm-hmm. uh, when when America becomes a an independent colony or an independent country. Rather, uh, they don't exactly uphold this. They've been having uh, you know keeping an eye on expansion west for a very long time actually it was one of the things that uh really bothered them and and led to the revolution in the first place uh first they wanted to go as far west as the uh, mississippi and then they said everything west of the mississippi was off limits for american Mm -hmm. settlers and then you know and then and then and then yeah uh it continues and i i mentioned earlier uh by the way the canadian relationship with uh indigenous peoples being a, a relationship between treaty peoples Specifically, because in the United States, a little it's a little bit different. They do have treaties, um, but also some of the uh, relationships they have there are proper military conquests, and some of them are uh, forced migrations and things like that. They have a much more uh, complicated uh, uh, arrangement there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to pretend to know uh, that much about the American system. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even really know probably as much as I should about the Canadian system. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, this topic is because I've been, oh, over the past several years, really been trying to fill that hole in my, in my, uh, knowledge. Yeah. But it's still really hard to feel like anything but an amateur, even more than other topics, because, mm-hmm. uh, we've had so much, uh, uh, of a gap in our formal, uh, educations on this stuff. I've had to pretty yeah, much figure it out true. myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, more, more than ever, please use this as a starting point and not a, not an authoritative guide on any of this <laughs> stuff. So that's the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Um, the other thing we really need to talk about is the nature of the fur trade going back quite a long ways and specifically how that relates to land claims in North America. Mm-hmm. In the 17th century, the fur trade was basically the entire reason for the existence of New France. Uh, Furs, specifically beaver pelts, were a massive fashion accessory in Europe. The like fur hats were all the rage for a very, very long time. (laughs) You could make a a lot of money trading these furs. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans actually more or less hunted the beaver to extinction in Europe over these furs. But North America had a lot of furs. Like got a, a lot of beavers. Lot of furs. <laughs> and so 
the French uh, founded New France on the basis of this fur trade, but the British were trying to get in there as well. Obviously, it's a it's a huge money making proposition. The French fur trade though goes entirely through the St. Lawrence, and we talked about this a bunch again in that in that New France episode. There were two French traders in uh, the mid 1600s, uh, Radisson and Grosselier, who learned from uh, some of their uh, Nehia uh, associates, Cree associates, that some of the best, biggest, like most abundant furs were actually uh, north and west of Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. And the French fur trade didn't really go any further than that. We should be clear as well on the nature of, of how that fur trade works exactly. It's usually... It's usually phrased as though there's these like French coureurs de bois um, who are, you know, basically running around hunting down beavers, piling them in their own canoes and sailing them back up the St. Lawrence. That's not true at all. There's a few thousand French people who are running the fur trade at this point. But the way that they do that is they bring uh, goods out into the woods and they create these relationships with native groups in the areas and basically say, hey, if you can bring me pelts, I will pay you X amount. Mm -hmm. And they create these huge trade networks where basically they say, I'll be back here this time next year. And however many pelts you have, I will pay you X per pelt. Right. And so this fur trade is done almost entirely by indigenous people in this region. But again, if you're only focusing on the uh, trade through the St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence Basin, you're cutting out a large portion of land and a large number of native people who could be contributing to this trade. Yeah. Radisson and Grosselier uh, scout up as far north as Hudson Bay. Uh, if you look at a map of North America, that's the giant bay that cuts into Canada. It's, it's huge. Mm -hmm. It's also very far north. But they find that, um, number one, the, the British have already found that they can get into Hudson Bay by sea which is really helpful. Mm -hmm. And number two, they discover that there are a massive number of rivers and lakes that feed into Hudson Bay, which makes it ideal for the fur trade, actually, because the easiest way to get through this territory always is by boat. It's faster and it's um, more direct every time. The trouble with all of this is that when you're running the fur trade with the French, you actually need like a license. You need to be like a licensed fur trader because they wanted hmm. it to basically they wanted to control supply so it doesn't get out of hand. Right. Um, this is very much like a top down organization. Uh, the New France was less a an independent colony and more like a branch of the French monarchy. OK. And so it's very it's very controlled. And this exploration is done. uh without the approval of the, uh, the the people running the fur trade. Oh, okay. And uh, the two men actually have their licenses uh, revoked for uh, trading out of the uh, allowed area. Hmm. And they go, okay, fine. This is dumb. And they, uh, <laughs> they go to Britain and they go, hey, we've got a really... Uh, lucrative proposition for all of you. <laughs> they shop around Britain for a while. Uh, they, they were actually arrested and fined for for uh, trading without licenses in 1659. Oh, Once wow. they get out, they go to Britain uh, and shop around for a couple of years until they find a sponsor in uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who is the, the cousin of the king at the time, Charles II, who basically says, okay, yeah, I'd like to get rich off of uh, <laughs> uh, furs. This sounds great. And he sponsors the two men to the king uh, and a whole bunch of very wealthy British aristocrats create a corporation, which is 
not exactly the same as you would consider a corporation today, but it's it's very similar. You're talking about a, a combined business interest with uh, uh, multiple investors. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time, though, you require like a royal proclamation to incorporate you. Um, and so the Hudson Bay Company, which is the oldest company in uh, in North America, is incorporated uh, based on this information from these two French fur traders. Hmm. Um, they, they send one test expedition out in uh, the late, te- late 1660s, comes back with boatfuls of fur, very successful. And in 1670, a royal charter is granted to the company, giving them monopoly over the entire region uh, of the Hudson Bay and all its tributes. So, any, so that's a pretty like sizable region. It's massive. Yeah. It's over a third of the size of Canada today. Basically, any river or lake that flows into the Hudson Bay, which is a lot, (laughs) uh, is by royal charter under the control of the Hudson Bay Company. So it's it's huge. It's Mm -hmm. uh, uh, about three point nine million square kilometers. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's massive. Yeah. Some of it cuts into modern day United States, but for the most part, it, it remains in, in sort of the Great Plains in, in Canada. It's th- This territory is named Rupert's Land after Prince Rupert, who sponsors all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually made first governor of this territory. Now, all of this sounds a lot like a land claim. Yeah. What it actually is on paper is a corporate monopoly over trade for British subjects in this region. In other words, other British people are not allowed to conduct specifically fur trade business in Rupert's land. I see. Because here's the trouble. That land isn't owned by the British crown. Yeah. They've never made any land claims on it. And as much as massive amounts of literature even up to modern times and make it sound like that land is virtually untouched. There's a lot of people living there. They just don't happen to be British subjects. Mm -hmm. They're indigenous people. Uh, Largely, you're looking at Nahia, uh, Nihio, sorry, uh, Cree people and various uh, Anishinaabe people, which is just sort of a more of a linguistic group uh, than anything, but includes Cree, Algonquin, a number of other Ojibwe, for example. Mm -hmm. It's well inhabited and these people are all more than willing to do uh, business with the British, right? But the British aren't exactly coming in and settling. They're not allowed to. Remember that proclamation of yeah. 1763. Not only do the British Crown not have land title, which by this time in history is becoming like a pretty important part of law, like who actually uh, claims the land, but also they've made government proclamations, royal proclamations, explicitly stating that they're not allowed to settle that land. Mm-hmm. So this is not British land. Yeah. Now, if you look at a map, it will be colored like British land, even yeah. in textbooks today. It's not. When we talk about the uh, Prince Rupert being governor of this land, it's kind of more helpful to think of that role as more like CEO rather than like a, a, a governor of a territory as we would yeah, traditionally think that's of it. Fair, yeah. The language gets a little bit confusing there. And that's going to be a problem for people in our story as well as for us discussing it now. <laughs> it's, it's the person who is uh, making business decisions, who is granting uh, trade licenses, who is, you know, making decisions in terms of, you know, where are we putting trading posts? Where Mm -hmm. are we putting forts? uh, How are we allocating company resources 
in order to maximize profits. Yeah. It's not someone who is setting up court systems or, you know, establishing a, a strictly business. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. And, and because they're not allowed to settle there. So they are allowed to make or, or construct uh, outposts, forts, things like that, because you need that as part of the business. Yeah. But they're also not allowed to settle there permanently other than like necessary staff basically yeah and for the most part the people who live in this region are fine with that uh in fact they welcome it to a certain extent because this is a massive economic opportunity for them they've basically plunked down in their backyard and taken something that for the most part indigenous people didn't really consider terribly valuable not it wasn't valued at all but it's it's inflated the value to a, a ludicrous extent mm-hmm. where an entire new industry has cropped up simply around uh, hunting beaver to sell to these Englishmen who are very willing to pay a lot of money for it. And I don't know why, but okay, why not take their money? Yeah, exactly. That being said, these people are very aware of the 1763 proclamation and they're very aware that this land belongs to them. They have, yeah. They're not feeling terribly threatened by the British at this point. One of the sort of unintended effects of the fur trade being as prevalent as it was in in North America at this time is the genesis of the Métis people. Uh, I know you often say Métis. Uh, that's kind of, I think that's probably because you have more French than I do. Mm. Honestly, it's it's a more common like French-Canadian pronunciation. Right. Uh, either way, the it's a French word that kindly means uh, mixed or, or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. You'll sometimes see it translated more like half-breed or something along those lines. And it could be a little bit pejorative, but usually it was more of a matter-of-fact sort of classification. In general, for this topic, you know, there's going to be some language that I would prefer not to use, but sometimes yeah. in historical context, it's uh, uh, sort of necessary when quoting and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, Métis isn't considered pejorative today. It's uh, it's quite embraced by the community, actually. Métis were people who had almost every time a European father and an indigenous mother. Women were often not allowed to come to North America, either by the British or the French. This was a strictly business proposition. No one was planning on really settling for a long time. Yeah. And there, it was kind of seen as though, like, there's no need for women to come. Why would yeah. they be doing fur trade things? This is the 17th century. Yeah. Um, they're not there to, like, establish any roots or families or anything like that. So. Exactly. Yeah. So now when New France gets established as an actual, like, viable colony a little bit later on, the king will like famously send 3,000 or so young French women to just marry the French men that are already there <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in order to, you know, establish families and whatnot. But the, the British never really do that in Rupert's land. It's, again, strictly business as we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. A, a pretty obvious side effect of this is that these men still kind of wanted to get married. Yep. <laughs> And since there were no European women around, they exclusively married uh, indigenous women. And this was actually fairly common. The the weddings were um, what's known as a la façon du pays, mm-hmm. which is uh, sort of in the in the manner of the country or, or in the uh, custom of the country. And they're very much like common law weddings. They would sometimes incorporate some Christian traditions, but were often done in the, the traditions of whichever nation that man happened to be uh, marrying into. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and they were recognized to a certain extent, depending on who you talked to. But I mean, for these married couples, they were very much seen as a real relationship. There was no question there. Yeah. So like, were these marriages recognized in Europe as being an official marriage or was it only considered like legitimate in 
the context of like where they were? More the latter. Okay. Uh, and a lot of that is just a function of distance. Right. Um, but also it's a function of these men when they, when they married into one of these nations tended to participate pro- p- possibly more than you would expect in the customs of that nation. They mm-hmm. would usually move into uh, native settlements. They would uh, take up ceremonial traditions. Uh, the child would usually be uh, raised as indigenous almost exclusively. A little bit later on, you would see some encroachment of Christian missionaries who are looking to like yeah. convert everyone, not just the the children of these marriages, but uh, they especially targeted the children of these marriages, seeing them as um, potential Europeans, uh, more than just potential uh, uh, Christians. So once they were married, was the expectation then that the family was going to stay on the lands or that once like the business side of things was accomplished that they would move back to Europe with their with their European husbands? The men in these arrangements would usually end up staying. Um, I'm sure there are cases of men deciding that this wasn't what they wanted and abandoning their families because there always is. Uh, (laughs) But uh, in in general, it was not considered unusual for these men to decide to stay permanently. Okay. At that point, it's not really seen by either party as being a violation of that proclamation of 1763 because it's not a British uh, uh, settlement. It's a British, British individual choosing to... Uh, join one of these communities and and that community accepting him uh, into that community. Yeah. Not that. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to paint like a romantic picture of all of this and say that, you know, there's never any uh, cultural misunderstandings or other other issues here, but um, it's not an uncommon story for that to be the case. The other thing is there are very practical considerations to these arrangements uh, from the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Men who were married to uh, indigenous women often had advantages in terms of being able to create new relationships for fur trade. The fact alone that he had a wife who could speak uh, probably multiple indigenous languages was a a massive um, help to him. He would have her uh, help in these conversations, opening up new lines of trade. Yeah, that would open up a lot of networking opportunities he might not have had before. Exactly. What's more, a very common early, especially French genre of blunder in the fur trade is making two nations who are mortal enemies, both your ally, and then just (laughs) kind of expecting them to work together because you have no concept of these cultural differences. Yeah. It happened a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, I, I point to that New France episode for for some context there. It, it happened quite often. Having a wife who could basically be like, hey, you know what? Maybe don't trade with those <laughs> this guys. This is not a good idea. <laughs> this is going to cause tensions. This is going to cause conflict. It's really helpful for just regional cohesion. Yeah. And it helped to really streamline these these supply lines, I guess you could say, uh, in in that they could basically say, you know what, go back to your trading post and have somebody else talk to them. That's fine. But maybe you shouldn't be talking to both us and them. Mm -hmm. That'll cause issues. And when things went south, I mean, they were very helpful in conflict resolution, being able to say, hey, you know, like defuse tensions uh, or or conflicts that these men had blundered into and had Mm -hmm. no idea how to get out of. They have that cultural understanding. Uh, They have that... um, you know, innate knowledge that comes with living in a society all of your life versus kind of waltzing your way in there as a European fur trader and just expecting everything to go fine. Yeah. So there's a lot of advantages then, mm-hmm. like inadvertently that well, come up through. Even even just little things like having someone to, uh, you know, uh, 
help with basic domestic things like making you clothing that actually works for this climate yeah. or uh, housekeeping or food. How, how do you, uh, you know, how do you keep from getting scurvy when you're in the middle of uh, yeah. the, the Great Plains? Well, these people know because they've been living here thousands of years. Yeah. It's, it's really useful. And, and again, it's, it's also not just utilitarian. These are actual marriages. These are, these are functioning relationships, but men in these relationships tended to do a little bit better in business because they had a better understanding of where they were, which yeah, is, that makes a lot of sense. It's a self-evident thing, but yeah. it's also worth you know pointing out. Yeah, for sure. This, this fur trade runs on these relationships um, and not just on a personal level, but on a, on a social level as well. If you don't, if you aren't able to create these relationships with indigenous peoples, you're just not going to get furs that you can send back and you're not going to make money. Mm-hmm. It's just the long and short of it. The children of these relationships, likewise, were extremely uniquely equipped to deal with the fur trade. They grew up, almost every single one of them, completely bi- bilingual from birth, mm-hmm. which is a massive advantage uh, translating for both sides. Yeah, makes absolutely. you extremely valuable. Uh, makes you a really good employee for the Hudson Bay Company. They employed a lot of Métis children. Likewise, being bicultural uh, gives you all of those advantages uh, yourself that these European men had been depending on their partners for. Not that that in and of itself is an issue, but it makes you more valuable as an employee, as an individual, because you don't have to consult with somebody else to get this knowledge. You don't have to be relying yeah. on your wife to do all of this, uh, you know, cultural heavy lifting. Yeah, exactly. You know it yourself. So they, they became uh, really valued as, as Hudson Bay Company employees. And what's more, growing up as almost exclusively children of traders, these children tended to sort of internalize a culture of trade in a way that you might not if you only kind of interacted with uh, uh, European traders, you know, once or twice a year to drop off uh, pelts. Yeah. They almost always were raised near uh, Hudson Bay trading posts. So they had a lot of exposure, not only to um, both cultures, but also exposure to sort of the day-to-day workings of business. Mm -hmm. And over time... You know, this isn't a thing that you can point to, uh, you know, a, a moment in time where this happens. But over time, these children of um, uh, mixed relationships started kind of developing a little bit of a unique culture from both the, the, their European fathers and from the indigenous mothers that they uh, were largely growing up with. And Métis children began uh, marrying other Métis uh, as they became adults. And all of a sudden you get sort of this again, over time, this, this unique and, and somewhat separate culture. Yeah. And at a certain point in history, uh, we start considering, uh, the Métis in, in, and especially in the area, um, sort of in, in what is now the, the province of Manitoba, very much a, a distinct, uh, nation from, uh, sort of their parent nations. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, they are considered, uh, uh, an indigenous nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a, a sizable number of of those 1.5 million Canadians I referenced earlier uh, consider themselves Métis, like one in three. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's quite sizable. And, you know, to be, to be clear, when we're talking about, especially Métis, I know this is a little off topic, but there are a lot of people who will identify themselves as Métis when they find out that somewhere in their heritage they have uh, an, indig- an indigenous ancestor. Mm-hmm. And that's really not the criteria here 
there it isn't just about ancestry here it's also about culture and yeah. that's a really important point about this like emergence of the metis people yeah um there is a distinct and unique culture there's even a distinct and unique language there uh in in the uh in the region we're talking about it's it's known as uh Michif. it's uh, a combination it starts out as like a, a creole of french and cree and it's really interesting, actually. It's it's um, I don't have time to get into it, but like the breakdown of like which words come from where and right. which structures come from where. So it's not like a unique dial. Uh, it's not like a unique dialect, but it's more like a like a blending of of two languages. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's it's weird. You find out, you know, all verbs come from one language and all nouns come from another, and sentences are constructed as though they're uh, Cree, but oh, you wow. know, uh, but Cree doesn't have adjectives, so the adjectives all come from French, and like it's it's a really interesting thing, but it's very much its own thing. It's not as though and and this is true of a lot of Creole languages, just because you know one doesn't mean you can waltz into this language and just expect to know. It's not like an accent or something like that. Right. Uh, or even like a, a regionality. It's its own language. It just is very clearly uh, brought together from two different languages. And that's a product of, of that bicultural trading nature, right? You mm. need to be able to speak both, but sometimes it's helpful to be able to speak something that is just between the people doing the negotiations. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah, it happens once in a while when when cultures are blended that way. It's it's similar to, it, not quite the same, but it's similar to what you'll see with like Cajun French or even uh, a lot of dialects in in uh, the Caribbean. Right. Uh, you'll you'll hear a lot of English words in there, but it's definitely not English. Mm -hmm. This kind of culture of commerce, trade, business also lends itself to a new type of industry that kind of didn't exist before. Uh, this timing. And it's not as though the Métis created it on their own because no one else had thought of it. It's more that it emerged at around the same time. But that's commercial buffalo hunting. Oh, okay. I should be specific. Commercial bison hunting. There is no such thing as a buffalo in North <laughs> America. They are bison. But at this point in time, a lot of people are calling them buffalo, specifically for the creation of something called pemmican. And pemmican is a mix of buffalo meat and buffalo fat. Hmm. that was packed into these uh, bags really tightly. It's dried out, packed, sometimes along with like dried fruits and things like that. Okay. And you would have uh, like 90 to 100 pound sacks of pemmican. Holy. <laughs> and the composition of it kept it from rotting. So this is like really fancy beef jerky. I was going to say, it kind of sounds like beef jerky. A little bit. It's, it's not dried out in the same way. Um, it's almost... It kind of looks like falafel, actually, when you like <laughs> scoop it out, because it's like it's 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 dried, it's powdered, like it's it's crushed up, right. and then mixed with the fat and sometimes uh, fruits. This is useful for fur traders, especially um, French fur traders, because Hudson Bay Company would have food sailed in from England, which is extremely expensive and time consuming. Mm -hmm. Pemmican is made locally, and it keeps for ages you could go on pemmican for a long time right and so this food is useful for these people who are leaving trading posts for long periods of time and need food that they can rely on like sure you can hunt for uh fresh meat or you can uh, uh, uh forage but like this is the prairies and if it's the winter like you're not finding yeah. a whole lot you yeah. need a reliable source of food or you're going to die out there yeah it's also more like time efficient as well if you don't have to oh of course worry about hunting and stuff and kind of putting yourself at risk that way yeah exactly so pemmican because becomes an, a very important part of the fur trade and the the commercial buffalo hunt in a lot of ways is is um monopolized by metis people 
largely because they're kind of in the process of this like emergent culture they don't have like all the roles kind of figured out yet yeah and so this idea of kind of creating new roles on the back of this emergent industry um is really not a problem for them so you know i i know it's kind of hard to distinguish what would make a metis culture different from uh you know ojibwe culture or something like that Mm. it's it's and it is hard for the first little while but you know, part of it is how these people see themselves in relation to both European and, ind- and indigenous people around them. Part of it is the, you know, these these lifestyles that don't really exist in other nations that they've uh, kind of incorporated as central pillars of, of their own. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, all of this kind of combines into a really unique phenomenon in that there's essentially a brand new indigenous culture indigenous nation yeah. that emerges in north america and it's weird because at first blush like there's there's this feeling uh certainly that i get and i know a lot of other people get that aboriginal culture in north america was kind of frozen at the moment where columbus shows up mm-hmm. and that like anything that happens in indigenous culture should have already happened and then europeans happened to indigenous people and everything else was just sort of hanging on for the ride yeah and under like the tiniest bit of examination that's ridiculous like of course it continued to change and adapt Mm -hmm. they're living people like why why wouldn't it it continues to change and adapt today you get into weird stuff like um for example totem pole carving is less than 200 years old oh wow on the on the west coast i know that's a little bit outside of our 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 scope but like it's one of those things where it feels like that should be like centuries and centuries old and we've ruined it for them somehow no no no, that's that's i definitely thought that was a lot older than it is it started off in the 19th century but but it's it's those kind of misconceptions that like we've just sort of been acclimatized to assume about these people which is really unfair yeah um and and is is kind of guilt inducing and sort of anger inducing at the same time like i feel bad not for uh, for not knowing it but also (laughs) but also i'm really annoyed that nobody told me this yeah why did nobody tell me this stuff i should have learned about this this is a really important part of our culture uh, of our uh, of our country so I think uh, we'll take a break here because I think that's enough background that we can begin to talk about one of the most formative events in uh, Métis culture, uh, which is known as the Pemmican War. Okay. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. Back on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And we've been talking about... Uh, early Canadian and specifically British relations with indigenous people in Canada. Yeah. And it's a lot of background for some events that are going to be taking place between 1860 and 1885 or so. But I think it's really important stuff because there's a question at the end of this entire topic. It it won't be until the second, the second part, we won't be getting to it uh, right now. But that question is basically this. In 1885, the Canadian government executed Métis leader Louis Riel for treason. Mm -hmm. Was this warranted? And it's an important question in Canadian history. In fact, it's one of the few uh, places where the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Canadian government actually gets covered a little bit in schools. Yeah. And even then, I don't think really all that well. because Not that much. I remember being given a very short kind of version of this story. Yeah, me too. And then talking about, hey, should they have done that? 
Yeah, like his name is very familiar, but like I couldn't tell you anything yeah. about him. And like even all the background stuff that we covered in the first section, a lot of that was new to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you look at it at sort of a, a university or higher level, Louis Riel will also uh, will often be talked about as one of the most examined figures in Canadian history. Yeah. But not until you get to that level. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but our unit on the Red River Colony, um, which is what we're building up to here, I remember more about building models of Red River carts, which are hmm. two-wheeled carts that were drawn by oxen, like literally building little wood models of them. Right. I remember more about that than anything about the actual people living there or the conflict between yeah. uh, the Métis and other indigenous groups and uh, Canadian settlers. And yet we still talked about whether Louis Riel should have been executed or not. Yeah. And it's a weird disconnect. It's weird. Yeah. So in, in a way, that's what we're talking about on a very long scale over the over the course of you know, multiple hours over the two parts, should Louis Riel have been executed for treason or not? Mm-hmm. And all of this is preamble to it. All of this is necessary information towards making a, an informed decision on that question. Because again, it's it's one of the most important questions in Canadian history. Yeah. Except we kind of don't treat it that way in all aspects. So let's get let's get back to our story. Let's talk about we're, we're focusing in a little bit more on a region known as the the Red River uh, Valley, and that sounds like it's going to be like oh you know you come over the hill and there's this little valley and it's uh, <laughs> you know a couple dozen houses or something. Yeah, the Red River extends from well it, it forms the modern day border between the states of North Dakota and Minnesota, all the way up to Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba in Canada. It's quite long. That's pretty long. Yeah. And it was quite important to the fur trade because Lake Winnipeg is really, really big. It's long. It's it's almost half the length of the province of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And remember, we talked about moving furs on water was the most efficient way to do that. If you continue up the Red River and through Lake Winnipeg, you are most of the way to the Hudson Bay. Uh, in fact, to the, to the largest port on Hudson Bay used by the company to transport furs out of North America. Right. So it's really crucial. It's very much the backbone of the fur trade. And so just by virtue of that sort of logistical importance, a lot of indigenous people settled along that that uh, that river. It was already a good place to settle. I mean, it had decent uh, agriculture. It was, um, it had good access to the buffalo hunt. It was, you know, really, it, it makes sense that people will be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the addition of the fur trade on top of that, it concentrates people along that, that region a little bit more yet. In 1774, a new fur trade company is established, uh, known as the Northwest Company. And the interesting thing about the Northwest Company is that it's not technically British. It's based out of Montreal. It's a bunch of very wealthy, I don't know if you call them French Canadians at this point since Canada isn't a thing yet. I guess they're in lower Canada. It's fine. We'll call them French Canadians. (laughs) Um, But but it's it's actually more people of... uh, uh, sort of Scottish uh, descent living in Montreal, um, although there's a there's a few French Canadians as well. They are looking at what the Hudson Bay Company is actually making money-wise. You look at the size of Rupert's Land and you go, oh my goodness, that company must be making so much money. Not really. 
like they weren't actually making that much money. There aren't that many people involved. Like they have a couple of thousand employees. Yeah. They're making, uh, at one point I think I saw the, the figure 150,000 pounds per year, which, uh, that, that'll be coming up in, in sort of 18, the 1810s or so, which is maybe 16 or 17 million us today per year. That's not okay. a big company. Yeah. That's actually a very small company. It's just they've got monopoly over trade in this massive area. Yeah. These guys in Montreal look at that, all that territory. They also look at all the territory that's not technically covered by the Hudson Bay Basin further west. And they go, well, we can do fur trade out there and we can probably do it better than the Hudson Bay Company is doing it right now because we're actually based in North America. Mm-hmm. We can work out of North America. We don't have to, you know, uh, uh, sail provisions in from... Britain. We don't have to uh, pay import taxes, all of this other stuff that's going on uh, with the with the HBC. And so they found this company and it's surprisingly successful. It starts out, uh, starts out stripping the uh, Hudson Bay Company in terms of profits fairly quickly. That being said, it's also often in conflict with the HBC. They're it's really hard to really determine something like which things are in the Hudson Bay Basin mm-hmm. and which things aren't. And besides, even if you're not doing the actual trapping or trading in the basin, you still need to get the furs back to, well, to the, the Canadian colonies or eventually to Europe. And so yeah. you kind of have to travel through there, but then they get into this technicality of like, oh, well, we're not actually hunting them in this area. We're just trading them. And also there's only a couple thousand British people in this whole big territory. Yeah. Can you just trap there anyway and no one's going to notice? And it's very fuzzy. The whole thing's very fuzzy. But a lot of what they're doing is all the same things as the HBC were doing as well. They're setting up relationships with these various indigenous groups. They are uh, trading with these people. They are uh, intermarrying with them. They are um, often working with people who are working with both companies because that exclusivity clause that's a charter that's given to the HBC that's only for British people yeah if you're Ojibwe and two different companies are willing to buy furs from you it doesn't apply to you sell it to both who cares yeah all of this exists in kind of an uneasy equilibrium for some time the Hudson Bay Company it's weird by the way saying Hudson Bay Company yeah all the way through every single time the Hudson Bay Company still exists today they go by the bay. The bay, yeah. We just call it the bay. <laughs> they're, a, they're a low to mid range department store. Basically, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of like a JC Penney's, sure, but in Canada. Yeah, they're still around. <laughs> they, I don't know. If you're looking for or a Macy's or something. If you're looking for some Ralph Lauren stuff, they will yeah. certainly carry it for go you. Go to the bay. So yeah, calling it by its full title is is kind of odd, but anyway, I guess I can't really call it the bay. That doesn't work. <laughs> Where were we? All, all of this was kind of just sort of existing in a, in, a, in a balance until the early 1800s, where we get one guy who's really going to change a lot of stuff for pretty much everybody involved. And I guarantee you've never heard of this dude, because I had never heard of this dude. And I don't know of anyone who uh, is really all that familiar. Uh, his name is Thomas Douglas. He was the fifth Earl of Selkirk. Never heard of him. I, and it's, I don't blame you in the least. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe if we had gone to school in Manitoba, we might. Uh, yeah, that's, that's entirely possible. Yeah, it, it, it's possible. But that's, uh, yeah, I, I had never heard of this dude. He was uh, obviously nobility. He's an earl. Yeah. Uh, he's also Scottish. And 
without getting too deep into it, there's a there's there's a number of things that happen to and in Scotland in the late 1700s that cause a, a sizable number of Scottish people to leave the country, largely for North America. And uh, Canada obviously is a is a an attractive um, option because you're still able to remain in British territory without being, you know, directly north of England, which is probably the source of a lot of your issues. Yeah. Um, this is a period in history where just physical distance can actually solve a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. As a very wealthy Scotsman who was very concerned about the plight of these people, Selkirk, uh, we're just going to call him Selkirk from now on because that's usually what he's known as colloquially. Selkirk was really interested in making sure the people who wanted to leave Scotland were able to do so safely and uh, to, to set up a proper new life for themselves. He uh, had spent quite a bit of time in Canada, actually. He uh, liked Canada quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind that Canada at this point in time, I, I, I'm saying Canada, Canada at this point in time is a little bit of Southern Ontario and a little bit of Southern Quebec, yeah, uh, as well as a couple of other not yet incorporated uh, colonies like PEI or Prince Edward Island, sorry, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. He had actually already purchased quite a bit of land in PEI mm-hmm. and basically sold it to Scottish immigrants at a, at a fairly reasonable price to make sure that they were able to sort of form a, a Scottish colony almost, uh, certainly a Scottish community right. uh, in PEI. He had done the same in uh, Upper Canada, what's now uh, Ontario. It's actually, it was down near Windsor, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, quite close to the, the Detroit border. Mm-hmm. But he kept having to find these like little pockets of land, yeah, which he didn't particularly like. Uh, he wanted quite a bit of land that he could give to only Scottish people. Yeah, he's very much like a Scottish nationalist, and he wanted places that he could uh, that they could farm extensively and like very like really become self sufficient. Yeah, so like quality of the land was an important factor there, mm-hmm. and and just amount. Yeah, as well, he did quite a bit of traveling to try and find the the right place for his people. And ended up making his way to the the Red River Basin and just fell in love with it. Thought it was absolutely perfect. There was tons of land. It was fertile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a little bit further north, which he kind of liked. It was, uh, you know, he liked the climate. He, he liked the quality of the soil, all of this stuff. Manitoba, you know, even today, but especially at that time, was incredibly fertile soil. Mm-hmm. Like really good for like wheat farming and things like that. And he, he it, this was really attractive to him. There's two major problems with wanting to settle here, though. Number one... It's already settled. These are sovereign territories. Yeah. There's there's another there's a number of uh, Anishinaabe people who are living in this area, as well as an emergent uh, Métis uh, population. Mm-hmm. They already live here. It's their land. Yep. <laughs> Problem number two. This is Rupert's land. Mm-hmm. It is for a British citizen controlled by the Hudson Bay Company. They have a, a monopoly on use of this land, which includes remember construction, which under the royal charter was limited to trade outposts forts etc when i say forts i mean less like a you know like a castle for warfare and more like a this is just an outpost that happens to have a wall around it yeah this is for trade purposes uh, a couple of people might live there rather than just being kind of a seasonal thing yeah there's the 1763 proclamation still in effect here so there is a limited amount of legally allowed british activity in the area mm-hmm. and he is a british citizen so Yeah, that conflicts with that. (laughs) And the 1763 proclamation also limits any, even if that charter wasn't in place, limits any British citizens from settling in that area because because it's decidedly further west than the Appalachian Mountains and it's 
decidedly further west than the St. Lawrence River Basin. It is west of the of Lake Superior, and that's kind of the cutoff for that whole deal. Luckily, Selkirk was extremely wealthy, and that tends to make a lot of problems go away in our world. <laughs> Sad but true. He had named this uh, this territory Assiniboia, which was named after the Assiniboine people who lived in this area. Oh, okay. And continue to live in this area. Like, it's not like a historical thing. Like, they were there. <laughs> we remember. <laughs> they, they, were, they were there, and he named it after them, but also wanted it. Like, it's it's a weird little... That's odd. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're still here. <laughs> Pretty much. But he wanted it so bad. And so here's how he went about dealing with his problems. Number one, Hudson Bay Company wouldn't allow him to use the land because they had a monopoly on it. No problem. He simply got a couple of people together and in 1811 purchased two thirds of uh, all Hudson Bay Company shares. (laughs) Cost him about 100,000 pounds. 12 million US today. Yeah. Again, sizable, but not. For a rich earl. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got got connections. He could make it work. He borrowed some money. He called in some favors, whatever. Yeah. So now he owns the Hudson Bay Company. Good start. Yep. And then he basically made his company sell him as a private individual the rights to develop that area. Hmm. In return for being allowed to develop it, he had to promise the company 200 men per year, basically pay the salaries of 200 men per year to the company and guarantee that any settlers in this region would not participate in the fur trade in any way, therefore, or thereby preventing a conflict of interest, which I find really interesting because there's already a massive conflict of interest oh, in yeah. the, the owner of the company forcing the, the company to sell <laughs> company holdings to the owner of the company as a private yeah, citizen. absolutely. It's... We're going to get... Just, just fair warning, we're going to get very messy for a little bit here. <laughs> the various indigenous groups who lived in this area objected mm-hmm. on very reasonable grounds, namely the proclamation of 1763. Yeah, fair enough. They basically said, what are you doing? You can't sell this land. We own this land. Yeah. It's not yours to sell. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like they have a strong point here. <laughs> and what's interesting is they not only object on their own sovereignty, which is already a valid objection, yeah. but on the objection that he himself as a British citizen is breaking British law via the proclamation. Yeah. It's a pretty strong case. Despite all of these objections, the first 128 Scottish settlers arrive in the Red River Valley in 1812. Uh, keep in mind, this is the year that we that, that the Canadian colonies go to war with the United States. So yeah. the British government is busy. <laughs> Not only are they busy with the Americans in North America specifically, but this is also the height of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. So they're kind of double busy. Timing. <laughs> this probably helps their case in terms of just no one paying attention. Again, other than the indigenous people here who are very upset about the whole thing. Yeah, of course. What's interesting is that they show up on the prairies of Canada to begin settling completely undeveloped territory or undeveloped for their purposes, at least they're they're settling where there aren't any like established villages at the moment, fairly late in the year. Mm. And I feel like if anyone knows anything about Canadian prairie winters, like it's bad. Yep. It's bad and it's cold. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's not a fun experience. <laughs> they would have died without the assistance of local indigenous people who, despite all of these like very valid sovereign and legal issues that they had, still did help these men not die, which is probably yeah more than some would do, honestly. Yeah, definitely. 
but they they defend they defended very heavily on uh native aid in this first uh this first winter they also kind of started doing things like uh you know there's there's fur trading posts in the area and they're moving these uh families into fur trade posts to help them survive the winter but these posts are designed to maybe house a couple dozen people at most on a very temporary basis yeah and it puts strains on their food stocks and it kind of causes this domino effect of like everyone in the hpc not really having a great winter in terms of like yeah just enough to eat yeah it's it's messy while they do kind of get going a little bit in the spring of 1813, they're still really worried about uh, food security mm-hmm. because it takes a while to get to a point where you're able to like self-sustain on food. And the fact that they set up uh, such a, an ambitious settlement project without really thinking through those logistics doesn't exactly speak highly to the organization of this whole thing. No. I feel like maybe they didn't really get what they were getting into here. It takes a while to, you know, for example create fields yeah for farming it doesn't exactly happen overnight and if you're too far into the season what are you going to grow for the winter yeah it was a bad time of year to come over (laughs) well uh, yeah and and to to expect yourself to become self-reliant that first year is completely it's unrealistic yeah 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 luckily there is a pretty significant source of food in the area pemmican right trouble is the Métis didn't really want to just give these settlers pemmican out of the goodness of their heart. No. They had a business to run. They were selling them to the Northwest Company, right? Yeah. Which puts Selkirk in an interesting position because as founder of this colony, he's really worried about food security. And as now accidentally owner of the Hudson Bay Company, Mm -hmm. he's really worried about competition from the Northwest Company. They've been rivals all of this time. It's just that nobody's really done much about it because what are you going to do about it? This is unincorporated territory. There aren't really police to call up and just send over to arrest somebody. If you're ever to come into direct conflict with somebody and, you know, they decided to call in British authorities, they would side with the Hudson Bay Company because they have the charter. Mm-hmm. But again, like, number one, War of 1812. Number two, Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Number three, a couple of thousand men throughout, you know, three million square kilometers of land. Uh, they don't see each other yeah like ever selkirk decides that he wants to crack down on the northwest company though he's bought all these shares he might as well make some money off of them i guess yeah (laughs) it's it's a weird position that he's in here i don't think he i don't know it's it's like he never really meant to run a company but now that he was running a company happened (laughs) now that he was running a company he wanted to do it right yeah is the impression that i've gotten yeah all of this culminates in the the governor that he's put in place for the Red uh, the Red River Colony, uh, a guy named Miles M- uh, McDonnell McDonnell I'm not sure which one. He issues what's known as the Pemmican Proclamation on January eighth, eighteen fourteen, and this states that any pemmican produced in the region can't leave, can't be exported. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to sell it to anyone outside the region, and the intent behind this is twofold. Number one, to make sure that the settlers are fed. Number two, to cripple the Northwest Company, who, yeah. as we talked about earlier, depends quite heavily on pemmican uh, for their food supply when trading in this region. The Métis heard this proclamation and went, all right, and continued to trade <laughs> because what do they care? As far as they're concerned, this is a completely illegitimate colony. 
Yeah. They have they, they, they have no reason to feel bound by anything that this guy says. Oh, no, no. They're going to continue living their lives the way they've always lived them. And besides, I mean, we've already seen that they're not really willing to starve anyone out that badly. And if they weren't willing to do that for 100 men that had just essentially invaded their territory yeah. uh, and attempted to annex part of it, they're probably not going to do it to the men who they've had a productive and profitable no. uh, relationship with for decades. So they continue trading pemmican with them. <laughs> yeah. This kind of blows up in 1814 when the Hudson Bay Company starts sending out armed parties to prevent pemmican from leaving the territory. They would do their best to find out where these transactions were happening. And if they weren't able to ambush it before the pemmican was sold uh, and take it from the Métis traders, they would afterwards go and basically rob the Northwest uh, Company trading parties, take the pemmican from them and be Mm. on their way. So there's these little kind of flashes of violence that start breaking out because obviously these Northwest men are going to try and defend the food source that they depend on throughout the year. And it starts getting really messy. The Hudson Bay Company... And here's the thing, it's the Hudson Bay Company who's actually sending these raiding parties, Mm -hmm. but they're doing so on behalf of the Red River Colony, which has been set up in Assiniboia. And so there's this real blurred line between settlers and the company because they're kind of both administrated by the same man. Yeah. And it's confusing and it's messy. And it was for them at the same time as well, because... You know, sometimes you have raiding parties of colonists going out. Sometimes you have employees of the Hudson Bay Company going out Mm -hmm. trying to enforce this law made by a colony that mm, has questionable uh, legal authority in the first place. Yeah. And so the Northwest Company is defending themselves, but also they know that they can't really go to the British uh, for legal aid because they don't have the charter to be in the area. That's true. Oh, that's really messy. Yeah. There's been this equilibrium for like... 50 years almost 40 years at this point that is just falling apart now and it's all because of these settlers having a rough first year or so yeah that really like spun out of control fast yeah absolutely the metis who were understandably pretty upset about the existence of the red river colony no (laughs) used all of this confusion and uh chaos as an opportunity to attack the settlements Directly, not just these raiding parties that were going out, mm-hmm. which, again, is, you know, on one hand, yeah, you're, you're, you're attacking people's homes kind of as, as raiding parties. And they're using very, like, similar uh, war tactics to what you would see in uh, the War of 1812 from uh, what you see from, like, Tecumseh and, and, and people like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, one that, that comes up a lot is the whole, what they would do is they'd get a bunch of guys on horseback and ride them out of the woods near the colony and ride back into the woods. And then they would circle around. And it was just a giant circle if you were looking from above. But if you were looking at the woods from the colony, it would look like there was just like an unbroken, continuous line of braves coming out of these trees. That's clever. And they would just ride for hours. It was an incredibly effective uh, uh, intimidation tactic. Yeah. So the Métis were using the same sort of uh, uh, tactic. Um, And I keep talking about the Métis, again, largely because we're going to ultimately be talking about Louis Riel and the Mm -hmm. Métis people shape a lot of what happens in the Red River area. But again, there are Ojibwe people, um, Nahia people, Nahia I'm so bad at that one. I wish I was better. <laughs> it's the proper name for Cree, also involved in all of these raids. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're they're very much uh, working together. 
a lot of conflicts in North America around this time and earlier, you would see indigenous people kind of working on both sides. There really aren't any indigenous people on the side of the Red River colonists in this one. Yeah. And that's notable because up until now, the way that the relationship has worked between European settlers and uh, indigenous nations has been very much... I'd love to say egalitarian, even though that's not quite true, but they were certainly dealing with them as sovereign nations. Yeah. You were getting a, a war treaty with this people, and it would very much resemble the type of defense treaty you would make with another country if it mm. was a European country. Yeah. That isn't really the case here. There's kind of a line that's been crossed. This time is different. The Hudson Bay Company starts aggressively asserting the charter. They're saying the you know they're attacking uh, Northwest trading parties, even if they don't have any pemmican, based on the fact that they are in Rupert's land trading furs, and so they're really escalating things at this point. Partially because the indigenous nations in the area are at least nominally allied with the Northwest Company, and mm -hmm. because they've been attacking the settlers, the Northwest Company, who's allied with the settlers, is attacking the Northwest Company, right. who they see as being allied with the indigenous people. And that alliance is very much one of convenience. I mean, yeah. there is the business relationship, obviously, but there isn't necessarily always a level of coordination between the Northwest Company and, and indigenous nations uh, that you would expect from like true allies. It's more yeah. like, well, this is, a, this is an opportunity we can take advantage of. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Selkirk, at the end of the War of 1812, manages to get the help of some British troops. It's not a lot. Like I mean, we're, it's a tricky one because we're calling it the Pemmican War, and you automatically kind of fill your head with images of like thousands upon thousands on each side. We're talking skirmishes of like a couple dozen people, maybe. Yeah, that's pretty small. <laughs> it, it's, it's really small. There's not a lot of people to be involved in this. Yeah. The, the British send over a couple of dozen troops. It's it's really, really small. Northwest Company raises more uh, troops. In this era, the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company are spending more money on trying to outcompete each other than they're actually making on any sort of fur trade. Oh. Part of that is the level of escalation. Part of it is just that furs aren't really that popular anymore. It's not as lucrative as it used to be. Mm -hmm. But like it, it very much goes to show the level of escalation. So now you have British troops proper, like the British government involved as like, a fifth party i guess we're up to now <laughs> and that's even just lumping all indigenous nations together which is uh, a little reductionist but they were pretty closely allied at this point the metis use the the chaos as an op opportunity to burn the main fort in the red river valley uh to the ground it's known as fort douglas in 1815 and in the process of doing so managed to capture uh, 150 of the settlers from the, the region, including the governor. A governor. Wow. Still not sure if it's McDonald or McDonnell. Eh, we'll say both. <laughs> After that, you know, the, the colony tries a couple of times to rebuild, but it was a pretty big blow. This all kind of culminates in what's known as the Battle of Seven Oaks. Again, it sounds huge. It's a couple of dozen people. It's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into every blow-by-blow -blow of this whole conflict. I think we got kind of the, the main gist of it. Battle of Seven Oaks uh, results in a settler defeat. Selkirk, seeing that the colony is kind of failing and obviously feeling very personally invested, yeah, emotionally and financially, I guess, in, in this whole project, <laughs> uh, decides to actually come himself. And he brings what could be um, considered a, a mercenary force. It, it's British forces, but he's basically paying them to come with him to this colony mm -hmm. uh, to help defend it. And 
with the, the arrival of these forces at, at this point, uh, I don't have a specific number listed, but I, I believe it was a couple hundred uh, British regulars because, you know, both the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812 yeah. are over, over now and they can actually spare some troops. Yeah. Um, with the arrival of these further engagements are more or less over, even though the vast majority of the war was a series of settler defeats, it kind of establishes a military presence there that is going to, in in certain ways, legitimize the existence of this settlement in the eyes of the British, because at that point, there's really no uh, further opportunity for indigenous nations to realistically uh, engage in, in battle with them and mm-hmm. expect to win. Yeah. British regulars in this era are, you know, I, I don't want to make them sound, you know, supernatural or anything like that, but they're, they're some of the best in the world for sure. Yeah. However, Selkirk is worried about the future existence of this colony and decides that maybe leaving things unfinished with the, the nations that exist in this area is maybe not the most um, forward-looking strategy, (laughs) and calls a meeting. And there's a number of indigenous leaders that that attend this meeting uh, in 1818, or sorry, 1817. Mache Wasab from the Cree, Oshki Duad from the the Ojibwe, all like really important leaders in their nations in this Mm -hmm. area, sit down with Selkirk and they, they talk about the future of this colony. And what is decided on is that Selkirk acknowledges the ownership of the Red River Valley belonging to the indigenous peoples of this area. And they agree to allow the settlers to remain, specifically in a two-mile wide strip on either side of the river, as well as a a major tributary of the river, Mm -hmm. in exchange for a yearly payment uh, made in the form of tobacco, to uh, the indigenous nations. Hmm. I see a lot of literature about this kind of talk about it as though somehow at this point, the Red River colony becomes a legitimate British colony in the area. And it kind of irks me every time because this isn't a land purchase. That's rent. Yeah. That's literally, that's, that is a lease on a, on a rent agreement. Yeah. And it explicitly acknowledges that, that, ownership and that's how they get around the 1763 treaty is by not making a british colony in this area the selkirk treaty is really important in that it's one of the first agreements in this region in the in the plains region of canada and it's also important in that it acknowledges very explicitly the ownership the sovereignty of this land Mm -hmm. being in the hands of the indigenous nations that exist there yeah it's considered a landmark agreement for for a number of reasons when you're looking at sort of indigenous history in in Canada. Mm-hmm. And what I find most interesting about it is even even up until this point, even after there's been this weird intrusion or attempted annexation, even after there's been uh, conflict, a conflict, even though all of this stuff happened, uh, British regulars are brought in. Like it's this is this is supposed to be like textbook colonialism right here. Yeah. Even after all of that, there's a treaty that's made on very like egalitarian terms. The Selkirk Treaty won't last all that long. It'll maybe 60 years or so. But for the length of its uh, existence, it's going to be honored by the Scottish settlers that are, are living there. The, the people of the Red River Valley will be paid the rent that's due to them. Mm-hmm. 
this sounds like it should be a point where we're like, okay, and everything is great from now on. <laughs> I, I mean, even even during all of this uh, this stuff happening, things are things are sort of happening above the control of the indigenous people without their say. In eighteen eighteen, for example, in the aftermath of the War of eighteen twelve, the British government sits down with the U.S. government and hashes out sort of a. You know, it's really com- common after a war to sort of sit down and, and talk terms. Yeah. And a lot of times it's uh, it involves uh, uh, territory negotiations. Mm-hmm. And the United States at this point in time is hungry for land. Yeah. This is like peak manifest destiny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they they want to go as far north as they possibly can in the plains. They don't care about uh, Proclamation of 1763. Yeah. And this time period is where the 49th parallel is set as the border between Canada and the United oh, States. Okay. Um, if you look at a, a map between the two countries, there's just like a very straight line uh, yep. west of the um, uh, the Great Lakes. That's decided on in 1818. And that line cuts directly through the Red River, mm. which means that half of the, well, it's, it's a little bit less than half, but a, a sizable chunk of the Red River Valley has just become United States territory. Right. Um, that all belongs to the U.S. after they made the, the Louisiana Purchase. So all of those people are no longer bound by this Selkirk ter- uh, Treaty. Uh, all of those people are no longer protected by the Proclamation of 1763. It's a, it's a pretty big deal for these yeah. people. And the British kind of just hand waved that away. There's this massive investigation in the in the aftermath of the Pemmican War. Selkirk is actually found to be the instigator uh, because of his sort of aggressive moves towards uh, escalating the conflict, towards mm-hmm. uh, cutting off food supplies to the Northwest Company, all of that. And he ends up spending the rest of his life, which is not that much longer, honestly, uh, <laughs> trying to defend himself in court. Uh, he actually died in 1820, still with charges pending. Mm. And in 1821, in light of all of this conflict... Uh, the British government pressures the Northwest Company to sell its shares to the Hudson Bay Company to sort of remove the possibility of this happening in the future right. and the two merge. That kind of aggressive expansion that we talked about in the U.S., it's followed up by like the Oregon Trail going to uh, the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of famously from about the late 1820s to the 1860s. And Britain gets really worried about northward expansion of Territories that they don't have any control over. Yeah. I mean, even Rupert's Land, they're kind of acting like they have control over it. But they, they don't. Just, yeah. Well, they just sold the border of it to the United States. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's not really theirs. <laughs> um, the California Gold Rush takes place mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 1849. And the United States is very much looking at the entire Red River Valley going like, hey, this actually looks really great. But, you know, as so many people have before. Yeah. And Britain gets really worried about actually holding it there's other stuff going on with canada you know i i don't know how much you remember talking about canadian confederation in school and like the reasons behind it i find that often it's kind of presented as you know the times seem to be right and then you know there's the charlottetown conference where a bunch of the charlottetown conference is like fathers of confederation get together and talk about becoming an independent country exactly they go to britain and propose it to queen victoria and she says yes and now it's a country and it's very like (laughs) sterile yeah and it's not really talked about in the context of, for example, this expansionistic nature of, of uh, the United States mm-hmm. or the fact that the War of 1812 just happened 50 years before. And what Britain learned from that is, you know, hey, this is a really small colony that doesn't really make us a lot of money, but it's really costly to defend it militarily. Yeah. And maybe it's not worth actually defending. Yeah. There's a lot of context that gets lost there. There's also the fact that, hey, 
Quebec is there, and that's really complicated and messy. Yeah, we've talked uh, on other shows about sort of the uh, concessions that were made to Quebec in order to sort of placate the people who were conquered in in 1763. Uh, you know, allowing them freedom of religion and, and and things like that that make Canada kind of a nightmare to administrate for the British government. Mm-hmm. In 1837 and 1838, there's a series of rebellions in uh, Upper and Lower Canada. There's all this stuff that's going on that's making it really difficult for Britain to hang on to Canada. And then in 1857, as you and I have talked about before, uh, the East India Company is dissolved and the British government takes direct control over India, which takes a massive amount of uh, resources, except that India makes Britain a lot of money. Yeah. And Canada doesn't. (laughs) So when these Fathers of Confederation go to Britain in 1867 and say, hey, we'd like to become an independent colony... I think there's a little bit of a sigh of relief from the British government. Yeah, makes sense. They don't... We're, we're bleeding money a little bit. Yeah. Furs are not popular anymore, and we don't offer a lot of other stuff. Yeah. We're a liability. The United States is right there. We don't know when they're going to be... When they're going to come after us again. Also, uh, and, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, in the American Civil War between 1860 and 1865, the British Empire unofficially supports the south Mm. they're not really happy with america in general and they saw supporting the south as an opportunity to destabilize them as a power in the region right it's not necessarily an ideological support so much as a practical uh uh, political support yeah um but when the north wins in 1865 they're not happy with the british (laughs) empire kind of understandably yeah and if you're britain in 1867 the war has just ended two years before, and Canada is going, hey, we'd like to go it alone. <laughs> You're yeah. thinking to yourself, oh, good, because I've been worried that we're going to have to fight another war in North America yeah. just like 50 years ago because they're mad about all of this. Yeah, makes sense. It's, yeah, the, the timing, I, I don't think Britain could have gotten rid of us fast enough at that point. Confederation begins with Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. They really wanted British Columbia as well, which is actually a relatively new territory at that time for Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, it had only been established for something like 40 years as a uh, like an actual colony. Right. Um, and that was a messy thing because it's technically west of the 1763 proclamation areas. But then again, the kind of existence of the whole uh, northwest area, the whole Cascadia area, was really kind of tricky at that point. The borders between what was owned by the, the United States and Britain both were laying claim to similar areas like it was all contested huge mess that we don't really have a chance to get into right now but one of bc's main requirements for joining confederation which canada wanted number one to do the whole c to c thing just like the united states and number two prevent american expansion northward yeah um remember we've got a gold rush on the yukon at this point they wanted BC as part of Confederation. And, and BC said, we will not be part of Confederation unless we are connected to the rest of Canada by rail. Oh, okay. And in order, by the way, all the followers of Confederation, massive rail magnates. <laughs> they were all for this idea. They could yeah. sell a lot of railroads. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yikes, yikes, yikes. In order to run rail from British Columbia to the rest of Canada, you have to run rail right through Rupert's Land and right through oh. the Red River Valley. And so in 1869, they approached the Hudson Bay Company about selling Canada mm-hmm. all of Rupert's land. There's just one problem. It's not theirs it's to not sell. It's not theirs to sell, exactly. I think we're going to stop here for today. 
And uh, when we come back next time, we're going to find out uh, what all those indigenous nations have to say about the sale of Rupert's <laughs> land to the Dominion of Canada. Sounds good. With the Confederation of Canada in 1867 and its need for control over the prairies, the agreements made with the indigenous nations in the region would be put to the test. Next time, we'll look at how the new Canada developed that relationship with these groups, though given the title of these episodes, I'm sure you can imagine how it's going to go. That episode will be up on February 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.